Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 4. This evening we're going to look as a continuation of what we studied a few weeks ago. Last week we had our Good Friday message. Um, and before that we were able to kind of start off a little bit about the parable of the sower. Um, and just to give, just to remind us of where what we've gone through so far, I'd like to read from Mark chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to verse 20. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him. And he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. <laughs> Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell upon the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it and yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables, and he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may, uh, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Verse thirteen, and he said to them, "Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word." These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it became unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60, and a hundredfold. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of how the things that we hear, it's only because you've enlightened us. And as we dive deeper into your word, I pray that you can illuminate passages and things about your word to make us more like you. Give us a clear understanding like your disciples that um, that know your word and seek to be changed and moved by it and to bear fruit in our lives. Lord, be, let, give us attentiveness now as we've just gone through just a long week of work and school. May you give us just some extra measure of grace to be able to um, hear your word preach, Lord. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, as I said before, this is really a continuation of a message that we heard two weeks ago. Jesus' his, his reputation and popularity is growing, and many people want to hear Jesus. A lot of them probably want to just see him just so that they can uh, be healed. And Jesus is, um, because of his popularity is growing, he's actually out there preaching in the ocean, uh, in this really lake of Galilee. And as he was preaching there, he was speaking in parables, and this particular passage is really the longest parable, and he speaks of this in terms of showing and encouraging the disciples to understand that evangelism is going to have different types of results. There's going to be people that hear God's word, and they're going to respond differently. 
And when he first taught this parable, uh, the disciples were wondering, what is he saying? Um, it says it, earlier that there was a group of them, and uh, along with the 12 that wanted to understand, they actually went to, uh, wanted to know um, what he was saying. Because it, it just seemed really bizarre if, you know, there are all these people going to hear Jesus, and he's all of a sudden talking about these farming things. It's like people know about this, but... They want to know why is he talking about these things. And he explains to them that for those that are inside, those that are followers, they'll be able to get the explanation and the understanding, while those that are outside, to them, all they hear are just these stories. Uh, a parable, it's, it's designed to, it's this earthly illustration that points to a heavenly truth. And Jesus was using these things to really conceal those that are unbelievers, those that do not seek to know about the kingdom of God. And to them, in a lot of ways, this is judgment. Uh, there's a reason why in, in verse 12, Jesus references an Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 6. is because in that particular passage as well, Israel were rebellious. They did not want to hear what God had to say. They did not care about the prophets. They didn't heed the warnings. And therefore, the Lord spoke in ways that they did not understand. But for the believers, it was something that it should make sense to them. It should resonate with them. Now, when we get to this particular passage, Jesus is alone with his closest disciples, and he explains it to them. He explains what the point of these parables are. And I think as I was studying this these last few weeks, I find that these par- this particular parable has, it has two truths or lessons. And there's some that are for evangelistic purposes, because as he's going out and he's training his disciples to go do evangelism, they just kind of have to embrace the reality that not everyone's going to accept the message, and there's going to be some that's going to thrive and grow and bear a ton of fruit. At the same time, I feel like he's also teaching this for the disciples to check their own hearts, because some of them will actually respond uh, like the third soil, where you know this is like Judas, he gets choked up by the things of the world, but the rest of them are going to be like this last soil, which would bear a a tremendous amount of fruit. So I think because of that, I want to see and go through this passage in the same way. We're going to look at each of the four soils, uh, and and I want to try and encourage us in the field of evangelism, as well as doing some self-reflection on where we need to be. Jesus is trying to get them to become followers of him, and I think there's some people that did not understand, but they were still close to him, at least in proximity. And he goes through these parables. Now, this is the first of four in this chapter. There's going to be, in the following weeks, or in the, in the yeah, in following weeks, there's going to be different parables, and each of them are going to talk about uh, the uh, different ways to explain salvation to people and what they need to do with the gospel. But this is the longest one. Of all the parables he talks about in, in chapter four, this is the longest one here. Now, in verse 13, he said, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? And this is really the first one, and it's a very key parable, because this is the one that really unlocks the rest of the parable. And it is interesting that this parable that Jesus speaks of is, is on, on the topic of salvation and evangelism. How do you know if you're truly saved? And if you're saved and you're going out to share the gospel, this is the reality of sharing the gospel with the people. And it says in verse 14 that the sower sows the word. Now, the sower, there isn't much description about him. The only thing that we know is that he is just sowing seed. That is his job. Uh, his job is to go and spread seed all over. And, and it's intended because he's not the main focus here. He's not supposed to take the, the main spotlight. He, there isn't much to say about him. There isn't description about his, how he throws and arcs the, uh, the, the throw of the seed. It's not, it doesn't talk, talk about his attire. It doesn't talk about the kind of satchel he might have had to, you know, the little seed bag that he had. It was none of that. The sower was just doing his job. He went out sowing seed. And this is an important lesson for us as Christians. And when we think about evangelism, our job is not to look good. It's not to be the main focus. Our job as evangelists is just to sow the seed of the gospel. In the last decade or so, and I think even if you go back before that, there's always, every few years or so, there's always this movement to try to make the gospel more appealing to the world. Right? We see the, the seeker-sensitive movement. There's the people that say things like, oh, don't, don't tell people about 
um, sin. You want to be as inviting as possible. You want to try to make the stage a certain way. You want to have a certain type of music, just so that non-believers can feel welcome into your church. And in their minds, they think that that's what the gospel is all about. It's all about bringing people into the building and in hopes that somewhere along the line that Jesus will just rescue them. Uh, in more recent time, we, if you've listened to that Mars Hill podcast, he was more of the, Mark Driscoll, he was the guy that really wanted to make re, uh, reformed Christians like tough. You know, he was the guy that wanted to make uh, believers uh, you know, more aggressive. And he tried to find ways to fill up stadiums and, you know, the, the, the kind of like the image that he wanted people to have about Christianity is this crazy masculine Christianity and obviously all of these fads come and go. But we know as Christians that we are not supposed to try to make the gospel appealing because the gospel is not naturally attractive to people. The gospel talks about sin. The gospel talks about how there is a need of of a savior and that they need to turn away from their own self-righteousness and place their faith in Jesus Christ and depend on his righteousness for salvation. This is not something that the world likes to listen to. But this is the message that we proclaim. And the sower does just that. He's just faithful in what he's doing. Now, I think this is a lesson for all of us. Again, we need to be like the sower. We don't care about our looks. We don't care about trying to appease people. But we need to be faithful in sharing the gospel with those that the Lord has placed in our lives. Now, as we get into the passage, the four soils, um, and I like to just kind of just kind of break it down that way. And again, I'm going to speak a little bit on evangelism as well as just self-reflection. So as we go through this, uh, we're going to see just lessons about these four soils. The first soil being the, the soil that is beside the road. If, if we see this in verse 15, it says, These are the ones who are beside the roads, where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes up and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Now, uh, I think I mentioned two weeks ago, that like, this seems like he, this guy is, is a terrible throw. Like, why is he throwing in rocky, uh, uh, beside the road? Shouldn't he be in the field? And just understand that when sowers sow the seed, it just, it just goes whatever. He's not really planning. He's just going to try to cover as much ground as possible. And sometimes when he throws it into the air, the wind might blow it to a certain location or maybe just certain seeds land in, uh, besides the road. And what usually happens when they're beside the road, actually, these, most of these, these sowers, uh, there will be birds kind of like watching them, waiting to see where it goes. Uh, this past week, my family, I went to the San Francisco Zoo, and uh, we were eating lunch, and there were these giant seagulls just sitting around, waiting. My kids were terrified, like Ruby was hiding in her car seat and Nicholas was burrowing himself into Kelly and they were afraid of all these seagulls and they were just looking at us as we were eating our french fry. And I was like taunting them, just eating it slowly, like, hey, haha, you can't have this. But they were expecting it because they were almost trained by all these other visitors that you just need to be close to them. And eventually they'll drop a fry and we'll get it. That's kind of like what this picture here, because we're not sowers, but we understand french fries and, and seagulls. Um, but that's what happens. Like these sowers would go out, and there would always be these birds just nearby, waiting for one to land in the road where it's easy for them to pick out. Now, this is the devil's job. It really, this is what he likes to do. He wants to try to pluck away people for uh, to uh, he wants to pluck the gospel away from people's lives. And you'll notice that when it says here the word here. Now, this word shows up 10 times in this chapter, but this particular word, it's in the aorist subjunctive, which means nothing to most of you unless you're a Greek person, so maybe Craig might understand what I'm saying. But this word, aorist, is this idea of horizon. Just think of like an unlimited horizon. And subjunctive is this idea of this unsure, uncertainty. So this word here is in that, in that uh, tense. It's like, it's this un. It's this indefinite uncertainty. So when they're hearing God's word, they hear it for a moment, but they're just unsure about what they're hearing. In fact, every single time you see this word in this particular parable, except for the good soil, it is that idea. It's that they, they're just kind of passive listeners. They hear God's word all the time, but it doesn't do anything to them. And here in particular, with this soil, it just kind of just bounces off of them. They hear this is superficial listening. There's no real desire for Christianity 
and only seem to want to avoid or dismiss the truth of Scripture altogether. Again, this word here, here is, appears three other times, and every single time on the bad soils or the ones that are being choked up and everything else, it's this idea here. Uh, and again, Satan goes after those that are not listening carefully to the word of God. And what does this look like? I know some of you, when you're sharing the gospel with people, it just seems like you're, you're trying to convince them, you're pleading with them, and it doesn't go anywhere. It just kind of bounces off of them. And some, for, some reason, for some, the reason might be it's just they're in a false system themselves. You know, they could be in a lo- another religion or they bought into some idea of the world. So when you share the gospel with them, the gospel just kind of bounces off. They don't want to hear it. So for others, it might be just because of pride. You know, they don't think that they are a sinner. You ask them they're a good person, they'll say yes. And you say, why is that? And then they'll just explain all the good things that they've done. These are those people that are prideful. They are self-righteous in that way. In others, it's because they're living in sin. You confront them on their sin. You explain to them the result of their sin before a holy God. And they know that, but they still don't care. They rather just, they can't give up their sin. They're enslaved to it. And they would rather have their sin more than Jesus Christ. And some people, uh, they just don't think Christ is worth it, right? I mean, like, uh, we know that the rich young ruler, he has so much money, Jesus helps to sell everything, give it to the poor, and he just can't do it. It's just too much to follow Jesus. Whatever the reason may be, when you, there are some people that when you share the gospel to, it just seems to just bounce off of them. And we know that non-Christians are going to have that. And this, again, the work of the devil, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach, preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. We know that that's the job of the devil. The, job, the devil will do all that he can to try to make sure that the gospel does not penetrate the hearts. Now, I know that in the evangelistic sense, we understand that we can share, we can be faithful, but what do we do? I think we should continue to pray for them. Just because one evangelistic encounter to a loved one or to a friend may not go the way that you'd like, that doesn't mean that you give up. I think sometimes we are too prone to think, oh, this is a probe for swine, and we just give up. We don't pray for them anymore. We have this one encounter. We think that's it, but we should always be praying for opportunities to be a light to them, whether it's just having them in your life or inviting them out to hear a sermon or just sharing the gospel with them. You want to be intentional with that. You want to make time for those that do not know Christ. And you just continue going because you never know if that person will come to saving faith at the end of their life. So be vigilant in that way. Now, again, that's the evangelistic side, but in terms of just your own life, now, some of you, you're in the church right now because you like the being in the church. And in fact, some people might have even confronted you on certain sins, and it just kind of bounces off of you as well. You don't hear God's word. You have this kind of passive listening to it. You say, okay, yeah, yeah, I know I need to work on that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know I need to receive Christ some other time. I was reading this Puritan quote that said that there's no pro- there's this dangerous kind of repentance that we think we'll do a later repentance. And there's no such thing as a later repentance because there's no promise that you can even have that opportunity down the line. And if that's you today, my hope is that your heart will be softened, that, you'll be, that your, your life will not be like this first soil here that's just kind of beside the road and being plucked up by the devil, but that the Lord may penetrate your heart with the gospel and that it will bear fruit. So that's the first category. This is the besides the road. Second kind of soil is the one that's in the rocky place, verse 16 to 17. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm roots in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, these are, there are these people that, that hear God's word. And again, soil two and the next one, this is a little thing before we get to these next two, is just to understand that there's no duration of time. Sometimes we think, sometimes these 
second and third soil. It'll take time and seasons for it to manifest itself. But this one in particular is someone that receives the gospel immediately, right away, and then they're just it's this joy and excitement when they hear about God's word. It says that um, it's rocky places, and um, it's not like Israel is just full, full of rocks, and he's just throwing rocks, uh, throwing seed at the at the rocks next to the soil or anything like that, or that soil next to the rocks. But just understand that in Israel, some of the soil there's just like six, there's like there's like limestone under four or six inches of soil, and some of these on the surface you wouldn't even know the difference. But when you throw the seed, you can tell that once it lands, it's because it's closer to the surface, it'll get all the sunlight, and and because it's also closer to the surface, it'll get all the water as well. And in the springtime, they'll grow really quickly. But when the summer comes, because there's no root, because there's nothing, there's no depth to it, it will just get burned up. Now, this implies that there's some people that understand that there is some sort of need that they have. Now, notice that when they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy. And this word with joy is just this thankfulness. They hear God's word, and they're just so thankful to hear that, oh, wow, Jesus died for me. And they get super excited, and then they believe. And it's so fascinating that these people understand that their need is not, it's not, some, not necessarily some sort of felt need, like, oh, Jesus loves me, and then therefore my life is going to be great. They actually understand salvation. They actually understand that they need Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people that come into the church thinking, that Jesus is going to fix all of their problems. And that's why some people eventually deny the faith. But there are also others that come into the church knowing that they need Jesus Christ and actually for a while accept him as Lord and Savior. I remember when I was in college, there, would, there was this conference that all of the college students would go to. And every year at the beginning and, the, and at the end, there's always this gospel call. And there's always like a dozen people that are not saved. And then they get excited. I remember one of, one of our group had this one guy that was really excited for Christianity. And we were all excited for him. And then he wanted to get baptized immediately. And he wanted to do all of these things. Uh, want to be part of the church. Want to get plugged in. Want to do a small group. Everything. And then as the summer ended, so was his faith. You know, there was no depth to his faith. And some people are like that. They have this desire to love, to, they have the desire in the, in the beginning. They're quick to follow Jesus. That's why it says they immediately receive it with joy. But yet, verse 17, they have no firm root in themselves. Uh, this change is only on surface level. It doesn't transform the soul. And it says that, but are only temporary. And now the question is, why is it only a temporary thing? It's because there is in that moment when they hear the gospel, some sort of momentary decision that is, it's to help them avoid some sort of danger or give some sort of advantage. They hear the gospel, and sometimes this is where it's dangerous in the church thing. That's why I mentioned the conference thing, because you're around all of these other Christians, and you think, I want to be accepted into this Christian club. I want to be accepted by these people. So out of this, this joyfulness, you accept Christ. You want to go because everyone else is doing these things. If there's some sort of advantage in being a Christian, this is why whenever... Uh, whenever there's like high schoolers that go to college or college that goes to leaves college and finds a job, there's always this dropout in the faith it's because their faith was never genuine to believe with. You know, they, they, they like being in the Christian high school group, so they stay. And then with the moment that's gone, there's something else that attracts them and allures them, then they go. They leave the faith. And sometimes people in college are the same way. They go to this college Bible study. They love being there. They grow for a few seasons. But then right when they leave, when the pressures of the world come in, they don't want to deny the faith altogether because it's no longer advantageous to be a Christian. That's why some people in the beginning here will accept Christ. And it says then, then when affliction and persecution arises because of the word. So there's, what is the difference between affliction and persecution? Well, affliction is, is, is this idea of being pressed by a trial. And the, the pressing in particular is about, it pertains to following God's word. So the affliction comes when you want to be faithful to the word. If you want to be obedient to the word, and then there, and you get attacked for it. That's what affliction is. So if you claim that there's only, that God made male and female, and that's how it is, that's, and people attack you for it, that's affliction. Because you are trying to hold to gospel truth, and people try to tear you away from that. Or they call you derogatory names because of the views that you have. That's what affliction is. Persecution, 
That's the actual attack into your faith. Those are ones that like, you are a Christian and I want to go and hurt you. That's like the ones that you see in the Middle East or in church history when Christians were being persecuted. That's what this word is. It's being killed for your faith. And both of these uh, can happen in the life of the Christian. We know that. We know that uh, it says here, uh, the persecution arises, this idea of giving birth, when, the, when affliction gives birth or when persecution gives birth, the people that are in this rocky place, their hearts will be turned away because it's too much for them. Now, when you're sharing the gospel to someone, you have to understand that at some point, you have to share with them the cost to follow Christ, that it won't be easy to follow Jesus Christ. Again, I made reference to the rich young rulers, the same thing. It caught, it, Jesus was just too much for them, so they're, they aren't willing to follow Jesus. And when you evangelize to someone, you have to tell them, like, yes, salvation is by faith through grace, and this is something, Christ is someone that you have, to, you have to hold on to for the rest of your life. Because a true Christian will bear fruit. A true Christian will endure until the very end. But again, for you, for, for you and I that are believers, we must understand that persecution is just a normal part of the Christian life. Uh, our sufferings in the name of the Lord, we must see it as a badge of honor. In the book of Acts, the apostles understood this. I, I would imagine when Jesus was teaching them this, that they understood, like, yeah, we are not going to be that kind of Christian that's going to be turned away because of persecution. Because in Acts chapter 5, after the apostles were being flogged for teaching God's word, verse 41, it said, so they went out on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul understands that suffering in this life, no matter how bad it is, is nothing compared to what Christ has in store for us. When Paul is writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul instructs Timothy, as is almost like his final address to him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffering is the normal part of the Christian life. And whether you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're doing your discipleship groups, this has to be something that you remember and instill in the other person. That the Christian life is going to be hard. That the Christian life, as you're faithfully living for the Lord, you're going to be afflicted because of your belief or you're going to be persecuted because of your belief. And this is just a normal, this is just a normal Christian life. And again, we are in a very unique place in America because most of church history is not like this. I've been reading church history a lot lately, and you find that, yeah, Christians would be persecuted by other professing Christians or even uh, other religious groups, not just the secular government, but Christians are just constantly being persecuted. It is the norm for the Christian life to suffer, and, uh, suffer for the name of Christ. And what's sad, is says, when, the, when their persecution rises because of the word, Again, it's because of the word. It's not anything else. They don't care about what our carpet is like. They don't care about the worship music. They don't care about what the chairs look like. They don't care about the lights. They don't care about the good things that we do. It is because of the gospel. Because of that, that's where persecution and affliction comes. And when they come, some of them will immediately, it says they fall away. Immediately, again, this is just very quick. Just as fast as they came into the church. When persecution comes, they, they immediately leave the church. This word fall away is actually this idea of a scandal, that once something is exposed, then they flee the town. That's something that, uh, that's the idea here, where when people find out that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's like a scandal to them, and the result is that people want to flee. And there's people in the rocky ground, that's like that. They, they, need, they, have to under, they, they don't understand the cost. Now you, as a Christian here, if this is you, you understand that, persecution will come, and that you have to understand that suffering is it's this life in the, in the span of all of eternity is nothing. It's going to hurt, yes, but then I, I, I trust, I know for a fact that once we're in glory, we're going to look back and think that was just, that's just like a little pinch. 
because we're going to be with Christ for all eternity, and all the pain that we suffer in this life for his name will be forgotten. It won't even be something that we remember. We'll just, we'll just praise the Lord that he sustained us during that time. So that's the rocky soils. Now we're going to look at the thorns. The thorns, these are the people that are like the distracted or the ones that are preoccupied. Verse 18, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones whom have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it became and becomes unfruitful. Now, in Israel, there are these vines or weeds that have these thorns in it and they tend to grow very quickly. And every farmer knows that they need to remove those things before they plant a, a you know, field. Um, and they do it, and they pull it, but uh, it seems like, the, like they get agitated. But they really, I mean, it's not like they get agitated, like they have feelings or whatever, but once they, they move the thorns, eventually they'll return. And you know, when the sower scatters the seed, eventually these thorns, get, uh, they, they get almost like they get like recharged and they get excited and they just go and they just kind of wrap themselves around the plants. Sometimes they will cover the plants so that when sun, uh, they'll kind of block the plants from the sun or other times they'll just absorb all the water that gets to it. So this is how the plants die. And the weeds, we understand, is something that is just nearly impossible to get rid of. If you own a place and you have a backyard, you understand that this is just, come, this is just going to be this perpetual thing that you have to take care of. The thorns will never, uh, the thorns eventually will overtake the plants unless, you know, the thorns are removed, at least these vines are removed. It's always a battle to get any of these, or all of these things out of a garden. But some of these seeds apparently were thrown there, and these, these uh, vines will come and they'll choke them out. These are ones that they hear the word of God, and it says here that, but the worries of the world. Now there's this, this idea of worries of the world, it's, it's it's what we would call like current events. They look at the world and they see the, the you know, wars and politics. They see the injustice going on. And because of the things that are going on in the world, they, they need to figure out a way. Uh, they just panic. They just overreact. And because of that, they deny the faith. This is whether there's issues with, with um, the, the, whatever the issue is in the generation. They're so consumed by the things of the world that they eventually become part of the world. They find that Christianity is not enough, so then they try to partner up with other things and, and be part of other movements because they are concerned about the things of the world. They're more engaged with the things of this world than the, than the world that is to come. James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, they are obsessed with wanting to fix the things of this world. And in doing so, they end up polluting and diluting the gospel altogether. You know, one of the criticisms that I think SFBC and most churches in general have is that why aren't we involved in politics? Why aren't we involved in all these social justice things? The reality is, is that we know that the most important thing that people need is the gospel. There are a lot of churches in our area that churches have gone woke. You will find that in a not-so-distant future, we might be one of the few churches left. There are a lot of churches now that claim to behold the line of doctrinal truth, but there are those that, because of the worries of the world, being accepted by the world, being uh, tolerated by the world, will, are, are willing to give up certain things, eventually will just deny the faith altogether. So you need to be mindful of the fact that as Christians, our main priority is not to care so much about the worries of the world because we understand the greatest need is the gospel, that people need to hear that death is coming and they need to be made right with God. But sometimes there are Christians that are so worried about the things in this world that they miss the main thing. They forget why they are still here. That's the worries of the world. And there's also those people that are that feel the deceitfulness of riches. They buy into this desire for money. Uh, money or things that money can buy draws them away from the faith. 
They think that I need to have all of these things. I need to have a certain amount of money in my retirement. I need to buy a certain amount of stocks and save up and invest. And in their pursuits of these things, which aren't inherently sinful, their hearts get turned away and they start following different things. Yet Jesus warns people in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can serve two masters, for, you, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devoted, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve two. You cannot serve God and wealth. And this is the reality. You have to choose in your heart. What do you love more? Do you trust that money is going to give you security or God's going to give you security? Do you trust that God is going to be the one that provides for you? Or do you think that money is the thing that's going to provide for you? Do you think that money is, the, is, is what brings you all joy and happiness? Or is God the one that brings you all joy and happiness? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, there's this Paul's letter to Timothy. He warns them about the love of this world. He makes this comment about this guy named Demas. Demas was referenced earlier in Paul's writing as someone that's just this faithful follower. But now here, at the end of Paul's life, he writes, For Demas, having loved this present world, hath deserted me. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now you have to ask yourself, do you love money? Or maybe what do you spend your money on? Because what you spend most on, is a reveal, it reveals to you what you love the most. So if you love the church and you spend money on a church, that doesn't, I mean, yeah, it's not necessarily the money thing because we're called to be cheerful givers. But what you think about the most and how you spend your money is a real test of what you love the most. Now, in our culture, I know like economy is bad right now, so most of us are saving. But even in our savings, sometimes it tells you a lot about what your own heart, doesn't it? Why am I... Why do I need to hoard all of my money? Why am I so afraid about inflation? It's because you trust in money more than you do the Lord. You're more bothered by, by the things of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and you think that's going to buy you security. You think that's going to give you secure, uh, make you happy, only to realize that as you're in your mind thinking you want to be a good steward, it chokes out your faith altogether. You're worried all the time, and we're, to- we're called by Christians, as, as Christians, to not be anxious for anything, but to constantly trust in the Lord. And some of us are blinded by this deceitfulness of riches. The possessions that we buy become possessors. But the, the, the things that we buy, the things that we possess, eventually possess the possessors. That's what's so dangerous about, this, about riches. The things that you buy, you think you have control over it, but eventually, you'll have control over you. Now, this last one, the desire for other things. This is almost like Jesus saying, everything else that I did not cover, everything else, anything else that Jesus left out, whatever you love, whatever you love more than God, that is going to be the thing that can choke your faith out. And this word desire is the same word for lust. It's you, you're lusting after everything else in the world, and when you lust after those things, eventually you will deny the faith. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a scene where Christian is you know, on his journey to the celestial city, and he meets, uh, uh, he meets another friend named Faithful, and uh, they go into this place called Vanity Fair. And then when they enter into Vanity Fair, there's, it's like a giant carnival, there's all of these games, all of these toys, all of these things they can buy, all these food, all these luxurious things. And the people in Vanity Fair are going up to, to Christian and he's telling them, hey, you need to purchase this. You need to buy this. This is what's going to make you happy. And then they were enticed by it at first. The character was just like, oh, yeah, maybe I, I do need this. I might want to buy this. Eventually they snap out of it and they realize, no, you're selling me a lie. 
this is not real. This, is not have, this thing does not have eternal significance. And Christian argues back by saying that they're selling you lies and I'm, what I'm purchasing has, have, has something of eternal significance and this whole place is going to burn one day. And then eventually in the story they get arrested and then Faithful gets killed. And I think that's the world that we live in and the world of Amazon and, and, and you know, just so easy to purchase all the things that we want. We're just a, a whole group of consumers. We, we're living in Vanity Fair. And I hope that for us as Christians that we do not desire the things of the world. We're all called to be good stewards. I'm not saying don't buy things and you know, be homeless. But I'm saying that when you buy certain things, does it cause your heart to love God more because you can see his grace and kindness to you? Or do you think, hey, these things of the world makes me want to live in this world longer. It's kind of cool. I like the things here. In an apathetic and affluent culture like ours, pressure is not going to come in the form of pain. Rather, it's going, to become, it's going to come from pleasure. It's going to make us want to live in this world. It's going to make our eyes set on the things below as opposed to the things above. When you evangelize to someone, you understand that when you're sharing the gospel with them, you're going to tell them that they have to devote their hearts to the Lord. And we know that when we share the gospel, you need to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that implies that everything else comes after that. Loving a family will seem like hate. Loving of things will just seem, you know, these things don't matter because, in the, because Christ val- is value, more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And in your own personal life, are there things in this world that you desire more than the Lord? Are there things that you find yourself just thinking about all the time and craving and, and wanting more of that may not be evil to begin with, but over time becoming something that enslaves you? And what's so sad about this is that it says in verse 19 that, you know, it gets choked up and it becomes unfruitful. Because in this little phrase here, it becomes unfruitful, it implies that at some point that they actually were fruitful. They were bearing fruit. They were the ones that were teaching in Sunday school and many people were impacted by it. They're the ones in their discipleship group that just pours out to people and then they could replicate the faith. These are the evangelists that are just so bold and people come to saving faith because of their boldness. These are the ones that are the, the nursery workers that, that help with the kids and then the kids are obedient. These are the, the children workers that, that work with the kids and then they're, they are so appreciative of their Sunday school teacher. But because of the lust of the world, because of the worries of the world, because of the deceitfulness of riches, they become unfruitful. That this is a warning for all of us as Christians that you might think, as successful as you might be right now in this moment, that you can kind of just autopilot on your faith. That you don't really need to try. Look, all of these things are doing so well, and then all of a sudden you just get tempted by the things of the world, and that eventually chokes you out, and you become enslaved to the world. I think if you ask someone like Bill or some of the older people in our church, or even, I, I'm feeling old now because I, I, I'm, I have a lot more things to reflect upon, back on, but it's very sad when you see someone that you admire fall away from the faith. I think in my life I've seen that. I've had friends and people that I've looked up to, people that I've served with, at one point, we were just so much more gifted than I am. They were able to do round, run circles around me theologically. They were able to do so many great things for the kingdom of God. But for whatever reason, they allowed this thorn to just choke out their faith. And that's what's scary about this, because you can be fruitful for a season. And because of these things that's in the world, you can be choked up and end up leaving the faith altogether. Be careful of your own desires, because it can ruin your usefulness for the Lord and your spiritual growth. So that's the thorns. We went through the beside the road, the rocky place, the thorns, and now the good soil. Verse 20, and those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word, Accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, 
I, I alluded to it earlier, but the first three, when you see that word heard or hear, is this idea, it's, you know, it's uh, aorist subjunctive. It's, it's like, you know, infinite but uncertain. This one here, this word here, it's actually an ongoing, it's active. It's a present active. He's constantly listening. He's always trying to hear God's word. He wants to know more about God's word daily. And there are those, and that's the good soil. The good soil, they hear, they keep hearing, and then they accept it. And this word accept it is just welcoming. It's this idea of like accepting, like welcoming someone in a pleasant and nice way. Right? When, when people, I remember when we first returned, when I, I mean, when, when, we first came, when we first returned, I was so moved by seeing just each of you come back. And if I haven't seen you, and then we're coming back, I say, hey, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. Um, that's that kind of warmth that we have. And you know what that's like. You know, when you haven't seen a friend in a while and you see them, you, you welcome them. That's that in warm embrace. This good soil, this Christian, they're like that. They hear God's word attentively, and they warmly embrace God's word. And the result of that, it bears fruit. It says here, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Again, I mentioned this two years, two, not year, two years, two weeks ago, that this is impossible, especially at that time. You know, back then, if they were to, like a good year would be like maybe six folds. But to have 30, 60, 100, that's like 10,000% return in your investments. And this idea here that Jesus is saying that, look, there's going to, a supernatural work has to take place in order for this to happen. That the good soil, as it grows, as the gospel uh, germinates in their own hearts, it bears a lot of fruit. And there's this natural reaction to those that are believers, are true believers. Now, I don't think this here, when it talks about fruit, is necessarily material things, as one of the prosperity gospel would say. Uh, I do think there's a mix between holiness and usefulness. Holiness in the sense that it's like the fruit of the Spirit. You're bearing fruit. You're like all the things that you once were not, you become. Not, you, you once were very impatient, and now you grow in your patience. Uh, you used to have a problem loving people. Now you're a very lovely kind of person. And not only that, but even in your evangelism, you love to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Now all of us, we should have this in our life. Right? Someone shared the gospel with you, and you share the gospel with someone else. And then that person will grow and that, will share, and that person will share the gospel with someone else. They get saved and it just keeps going and going and going. That's this idea here that there's this multiplication effect, not only in your own spiritual walk, but also in your usefulness to the Lord. That those who are constantly and actively learning about God's word, this is like, it's almost this idea of aggressively learning, they are the ones that are going to be bearing much fruit. So, question for some of you. If you were to look at your life in the last year, did it bear any fruit? Things that you once struggled with, do you see it kind of getting less and less? Are you having more victories than failures? Because if you are a true Christian, your trajectory is that you're going to grow, that you're going to have your evangelists, you're going to be more, you have a, you have a greater zeal for evangelism. You want people to know Jesus Christ because he's precious to you, and you want that Jesus to be precious to everybody else. You have a desire to have his name be made known. On the other end, you know in your own life that you're growing as well. That's, those are the people that hear God's word. Now, the, the common thing here in all four of these is that, yes, there's a soil, there's a seed, but also, again, the hearing aspect. That's important in our day because we are in a world that is a, there's a lot of distractions. You know, some of you guys have podcasts and there's all these backlogs of things you probably don't even listen to. But what you need and what I need more than all of things from the world, all of the entertainment, all even the Christian-type podcasts is to hear God's word. We need to devote our minds and listening and listening critically and carefully on how we need to conform our lives to his word. Again, in this context, Jesus is speaking both in terms of evangelism and what a new life, is, what a Christian life is expected. As you grow in your faith, you will bear fruits, and it will produce, and you will want to go and produce a desire in your own heart to go share the gospel with other people. Now, if you have none of these things in this good soil category, you might be one of the bad soils. Or you might be choked up by the things of the world. You might be on the rocky ground that just have no depth. Or some of you might not even be saved to begin with. But you have to just hear and listen carefully to what, this, what Jesus is trying to teach us. 
through this passage. Again, in the, light, in the context of evangelism, our job is to share the gospel with everyone. And we understand some of, the, some of the people that we share the gospel to, the gospel is going to bounce right off. Other people, they're going to be a believer for a season, and they're going to leave and deny the faith altogether. Other people, because of the things of the world, uh, they're just going to be choked up by it, and they're going to leave the faith. And there's going to be some people to evangelize to. There's just going to be such an encouragement to us because how they're just producing so much fruit in their life. So don't be discouraged. The sower, which is sowing seed, and he's out, and then some of these people have great results, and a lot of them doesn't. But this isn't, you know, when I read this when I was a kid, I remember thinking, oh, there's a 25% chance of victory here when we share the gospel. But it's actually not what it is. It's not like for every fourth person that I share the gospel to, then that person's going to be saved. But just the reality of evangelism, that there are going to be some people that accept, and there's going to be some people that reject, and there might even be some that accept it for a season. On the other end, instead of not only looking out in terms of evangelism, but in your own heart as well. It's easy for us to overlook this and assume that, oh, this is for other people. But again, like all scripture, we need to first check our own heart to see if, are we bearing any fruits? Are we hearing and listening to God's word? Are we that active uh, person that's engaging God's word daily and regularly so that I can be faithful to, so I could have bear fruit that can glorify the Lord? And if you're not, then you need to repent. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for reminding us in this parable, and I do pray, just like how you've said, those who have ears, let them hear. I do hope that for all of us here, that we are those that are chosen by you, that are, are faithful, not just faithful for a season, um, but faithful for a lifetime. And may we bear fruits. May we bear fruit that are 30, 60, and 100-fold for your glory, Lord. We want to be faithful in our evangelism and faithful in the way that we live our God, uh, live out our faith. We confess that there are moments that we have these momentary idolatries and we want to cast those things uh, out of our lives. Lord, help us with that. Convict us of sin and may we strive to, to be faithful sowers and also faithful doers of your word, Lord. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, quick announcements. Um, next week, we are... I guess some of you guys are probably going to meet here. Others of you might go out. Uh, but for our discussion group dinner next week, um, yeah, just, just get to know each other. Uh, I think what I want for our Bible study and fellowship group is that we dive deeper into each other's lives. As we spend time, more time with each other, you're going to see, you can be encouraged by them. And also at the same time, you're going to see like, oh, there's areas that I need to work on and I want other people to come alongside me. So in the future, we want, to, we want to create more of these type of opportunities for all of us to you know, get to know each other more in a, in, in a formal, informal setting. Uh, in two weeks, uh, I think, well, so some of you know that I'm currently in my doctorate program, and one of the assignments that they gave, which it sounds very intrusive, but I have to do it, is that we have to preach, um, we have to preach three consecutive weeks on a topic. And the topic for this semester in particular is on the Trinity. So after we come back from next, from next week, so two weeks from now, uh, I'm going to spend, take a break from Mark, and then I'm going to preach on the Trinity for three weeks. Uh, the first being why we need to know the Trinity, and then the second week, the week after that will be why we need to live out the Trinity, and third is how we can teach or defend the Trinity against non-Christians. Um, and there's going to, again, this is part of my assignment, so, so please, this is like a favor I'm asking. Uh, they're going to, they, they told us, you have to send uh, like a questionnaire just to see, just to, for me to see how much you know about this topic. And hopefully at the end, I'll give the questionnaire again to see, hopefully you've been proved that in my teaching of these topics, that you have a greater appreciation uh, for our triune God. Uh, so that's just, we're going to take a little mini break um, from the book of Mark, and then after that, we'll return back uh, into the into Mark chapter four.